0: I feel a little guilty, but I'm going to ask you to stand for the second reading too. <laughs> you stand not in my honor, but you stand in, in honor of the word of God. Hear the word of God. After we said goodbye to the elders, we sailed away straight to Kos Island. The next day we went to the island of Rhodes, and from there we went to Pateras. There we found a ship that was going to the area of Phoenicia. We got on the ship and sailed away. We sailed near the island of Cyprus. We could see it on the north side, but we did not stop. We sailed to the country of Syria. We stopped at Tyre because the ship needed to unload its cargo there. We found the Lord's followers there and stayed with them for seven days. They warned Paul not to go to Jerusalem because of what the Spirit had told them. But when our time there was up, we returned to the ship to continue our trip. All the followers, even the women and the children, came with us to the seashore. We all knelt down on the beach, prayed, and said goodbye. Then we got on the ship, and the followers went home. We continued our trip from Tyre and went to the city of Ptolemy. We uh, greeted the believers there and stayed with them one day. The next day, we left Ptolemy and went to the city of Caesarea, We went into the home of Philip and stayed with him. We had the work of telling the good news. He had the work of telling the good news. He was one of the seven helpers. He had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophesying. After we had been there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came from Judea. He came to us and borrowed Paul's belt. He used it to tie his own hands and feet. He said, the Holy Spirit tells me, This is how the Jews in Jerusalem will tie up the man who wears this belt. Then they will hand him over to people who do not know God. When we heard this, we and the other followers there begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem, but he said, Why are you crying and making me feel so sad? I am willing to be put in jail in Jerusalem. I am even ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. We could not persuade him to stay away from Jerusalem. So we stopped begging him and said, "We pray that the we pray that what the Lord wants will be done." This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. John Piper described the work of uh, preparing a sermon. Uh, Uh, As a kind of gold mining, he spends the week down in in the mine looking for ore. And then on Sunday morning, he brings up the nuggets and and, uh, offers them to the people. But what's required of that ore is the refining of the Holy Spirit. And so we always call on the Holy Spirit to direct and to guide us, uh, even in the proclamation and in the hearing of the word. So let's join our hearts together uh, in prayer as we prepare for the preaching this morning. Almighty God, you have the words of life. You have the words that brought this world into being. You have the words that were incarnate in Jesus Christ and offered us a way and a, and a path back to you. You have the instruction of the law and you have the instruction of Lord Jesus. You have the ordering principle of this universe and the ordering principle of your desire. Father God, we pray that as we come to your written word this morning, that these ancient words would speak to us in our time and in our place We ask for your help. We ask that uh, our hearts and our minds and our lives would be ordered according to your logos, according to your word. I pray that as we drink in the word of God that our thinking and our desires would be shaped according to your will and to your plan. And I pray that as we hear your word we might respond to it. Uh, that we would be not only hearers of the word but also doers of the word. We do ask for these favors in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So some of you are early, um, early adopters. You are the sort of people that technology companies love. When a new new technology comes out, you're the guys who buy it, and uh, you know provide the kind of the test case. I want to introduce to you a fascinating new technology that I like to use. It's a, it's a, it's a GPS, but it's a, it's presented all on a single piece of paper. Okay. And one of the things that's nice about this technology is that, uh, It's basically carbon neutral. You don't need any Google server farms to drive this once it's been printed. You can also uh, get a clear overview of of all of the data at one one glance rather than looking at it through through, uh, a tunnel vision. Another nice feature is you can write notes on it and and you can then uh, keep it in your files uh, uh, subsequently. Every time I travel, I I do take a GPS with me, but I also take a lot of of road maps. And when I, you know, when we cross a a state border, we always stop at the visitor center and pick up the latest, the latest map. And as I'm traveling, I'm always marking where I am. I don't know if you can see it, but uh, I mean, I've, I've drawn a little line here. We we had gone to Memphis, and then we went down into the. Down into the Delta and crossed over into Arkansas and kind of wandered our way uh, up through the, through the Ozarks there because we were uh, heading for a town of of Eureka Springs. One of the things that I like about uh, using this new technology is, is that afterward I can look back at where I've been. And in fact, I think this this uh piece of technology would be an admissible document in a in a court of law this this could could, could prove uh where i where i had been and uh i have these kinds of maps for uh, many trips that i've taken uh going back uh, well i I can remember one, it's at least 30 years old, a trip that I, that I took with Ava. And I can go back over those maps and see all the places and remind myself of the little towns that we had visited along the way. And yes, I always go on the small roads through the little towns. Now, in our reading this morning from Acts chapter 21, we have something like this, a very detailed map of where Paul and his companions were traveling. You, you may have known the names of some of those cities, you may have wondered about the shipping routes, you may have kind of marveled at how you could pull into a port and, and get on a ship and go to another port. One of the uh, things that uh, I think is so important for us to realize when coming to the scriptures is how reliable it is as a historical document, okay, so this document is recording specific towns that Paul and his companion are traveling through, and we can reconstruct these events. This is part of what convinces us that this isn't uh, a legendary account, that this isn't made up after the fact, and... and and, and prettied up in some kind of way, but this is a very kind of granular, concrete uh recording uh of the events uh of the Apostle Paul's life. Now in parts of the book of Acts uh we come upon passages, we call them the we passages, uh because uh in uh in the in the text the, the pronoun we keeps coming up. The writer of the Acts of the Apostles, you might recall, is the Doctor Luke. Uh, he's also the author of, of of the Gospel of Luke, and so the uh, the Acts of the Apostles is essentially the second part of a two volume work. First, you read the Gospel of Luke, and then you read the Acts of the Apostles. And when you marry those two things together, you get a, you get a, a nice uh, a nice history of the uh, of the early church. And so, in these wee passages. We know that Luke is himself present, or sometimes when uh, Luke is recording things that he wasn't there for, but that he had to hear about secondhand, or he read some kind of report about, but in several places, uh, he writes, we, 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 after we said goodbye to the elders, we sailed Away straight to Cos Island. And so we know that Luke is present with, uh, with, um, the apostle Paul and his other companions who were traveling with him on this journey. And in some sense, we get a more, a rich picture and a very first-hand picture. Okay? Luke is, uh, the most historical of all of the gospels. It's the gospel where, uh, the writer of the gospel intentionally went out and pulled together information and compared different accounts and compared the documents that were uh, available. He was behaving somewhat like a modern uh, historian. Um, And here in the Acts of the Apostles, part of this story he's actually involved in. Okay, which makes it really fascinating. All right, so I want you to realize that we are in a we uh, section. Uh, Last week we were uh, listening to Paul's uh, speech to the elders at uh, of Ephesus he's actually uh, in the port town of Melitus and he sends for the elders of Ephesus and he tells them come see me and so they come they come the distance of about 26 miles and Paul gives them his farewell address he's on his way um, he's on his way to Jerusalem and he knows that he's never going to see these people again a very moving account of a man kind of giving a summation of his own ministry and of his own calling toward these people that he loves so much. In our account today, there's a lot of itinerary. There's a lot of description of just the travels. You could get yourself out a map and you could map out this route that they had traveled both on land and on sea. But embedded in this account, are also a number of prophetic utterances. And so this morning I want to spend a little time thinking about prophecy. The title of my sermon is Prophecy Shmophasy. And you'll see why, because of how Paul responds to the prophecies that are, that are offered to him. I want us to think about the prophetic warnings. Now last week in Acts chapter 20, The Apostle Paul had already mentioned, uh, this is in verse 23, that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. So already the Apostle Paul is traveling on this journey and he knows that bad stuff is coming. He personally has been warned uh, through the Holy Spirit or perhaps also through individuals who've spoken uh, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, spoken to him, and yet Paul continues to press forward. Prophecy, shmophacy, the prophecy says, you know, if you keep doing this, something terrible is going to happen to you. And Paul knew that something terrible was going to happen to him, but he doesn't stop anyway, which is a clue to us that there's something even more important than some absolutely God-inspired, true warning about a deadly future. Paul has been warned repeatedly that there's trouble in the future for him, and yet he doesn't shrink away from the task that he's been called to in verse 22 of our chapter last week uh paul says that he has been compelled by the holy spirit to go to jerusalem okay so paul's this paul's been on three missionary journeys and now he's heading back to the mother church in jerusalem he's heading back to the mother church bringing with him uh Uh, contributions, financial contributions that he's rounded up. The church in Jerusalem is very poor. They're having a a hard time there. They're oppressed. And he's been traveling in all of these Gentile cities, which are wealthier, and people have been making contributions. And Paul has been collecting the money, and he's been preparing for this trip back to Jerusalem. And so he is pressing on, uh, uh, on that way so the warnings we've already heard about last week in chapter 20 uh, there are warnings in this week's reading if you have uh, the text of the reading there uh, with you uh, in verse 4 we read we found the lord's followers there this is at tyre and stayed with them for 7 days they warned paul not to go to jerusalem because of what the Spirit had told them. Brother Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Something bad's going to happen to you there. If you go to Jerusalem, something bad is going to happen to you. So there's a warning there in verse 4. And then in verse 10, now they're in Caesarea. After we had been in, there for several days, a prophet named Agabus came from Judea, and then he, he goes through he goes through a kind of an interesting kind of prophecy where he 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 enacts it. He doesn't just utter the words, but he he ties Paul's hands with with Paul's belt—a kind of visual prophecy that you know something's going to happen to you. You're going to be bound. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound, and you're going to be handed handed over to godless. People. That prophecy, of course, will come true. So this entire passage and this entire journey back to Jerusalem is conducted with the prophetically given knowledge that if you do this, Paul, something bad's gonna to happen to you. If you do this, it's not gonna be well with you prophecy. Shmophacy is what Paul says in response to that because Paul is actually under a more important mandate. God has called him to go to Jerusalem in spite of the disaster that waits there for him. The purpose of the trip to Jerusalem, of course, is to relieve the impoverished church there. Along the way, they meet uh Uh, Philip, you might remember Philip from uh, earlier parts of, of the Acts of the Apostles. We first met, um, Philip in chapter six of the Apostle. He was one of the seven who were selected to be what we call deacons now. Uh, you remember that, uh, the church was growing so fast in those early days and, and, and the twelve uh, uh, the twelve apostles were doing all of the work. They were preaching and they were teaching and they were taking care of the people. And, uh, part of the work of the church was a daily distribution of food to the poor people who were within the church. And the apostles were doing all of that work as well. And they didn't have enough time to do it. And so, uh, they appoint deacons to take over this function. And, and Philip is one of, is one of those, uh, deacons. We also meet Philip in chapter, uh, chapter 8, uh, where he goes on an evangelical tour. Okay? He goes on a preaching tour through Samaria. He goes on a healing tour uh, to Samaria, which should tell you, those of you who are interested in, in the offices of the church, that the that the office of deacon can also preach and can also evangelize and can also Healed by the power of the Holy Spirit, he preaches and he heals people throughout Samaria. He has this uh, amazing confrontation with Simon, the magician, who wants to buy the power of the Holy Spirit from him. There's this kind of conflict uh, between good and evil that happens there. Good, of course, wins. You know how the story comes out. And then um, uh, Philip baptizes the Ethiopian, the Ethiopian eunuch. A a remarkable story where Paul, uh, under the uh, where uh, uh, Philip, under the instruction of the Holy Spirit uh, runs and uh, jumps into the chariot of a a wealthy man from Ethiopia who's reading uh, the book of Isaiah uh, and and Philip is able to instruct him about how the prophecies in Isaiah point to Jesus as the Messiah. So those are some of the earlier elements in the the life of Philip that we've met already in the Acts of the Apostles and then there's kind of a, a quiet time. We don't hear from him until today and here we find him uh, in this city uh, on the coast he's no longer in jerusalem he's got four daughters by this time and each one of those daughters is also a prophet okay so you know you remember the 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 prophecy in Joel, that in the time of the Messiah, that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on both men and women, that both boys and girls would prophesy, and so we see that uh, the the four daughters of Philip are also prophets, and then there is the prophet Agabus who comes from Judea, that would be the area of Jerusalem. He comes. Uh, and sees Paul and his companions there at Caesarea and he brings this warning that if you go to Jerusalem, something horrible is going to happen to you. Now, in, the, in Agabus's case, he probably not only had the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he had normal human wisdom. If he's living in and around the city of Jerusalem, he knows the temperature of the city. He knows the attitude toward this new group that's called the way. He knows what people are saying about the apostle Paul. And so he's offering some, some warning based upon what he's heard in town. You know, Paul, they're, they're saying these things about you and if, and if you come here, it's not gonna be, it's not gonna be, it's not gonna be good for you. Paul, however, continues to press forward in spite of the death threats. Now, Paul doesn't die in Jerusalem, but Paul is bound in Jerusalem and it, begins a process that ultimately leads to his death in the city of Rome. When we face death, when we know death is in front of us, but we continue to move forward toward that goal in spite of the warnings, it has to be because we are moving in service of something that is greater than death itself there are times when we need to avoid injury and we need to avoid death and there are times when we need to move forward in spite of injury and in spite of death the apostle paul is no fool i don't know that uh he is uh he's been warned again and again so it's not like he doesn't know what's going to happen here but he is he is unrelenting uh in Moving forward on our trip uh, a couple of weeks ago, we spent a couple of nights in in Memphis and we were staying in a in a hipster hotel. Um, it was an old warehouse that had been redone and right out the front window of the uh, hipster hotel, a block away, you could see the sign of uh, of the Lorraine Motel where Dr. Martin Luther King had been assassinated uh, in 19... 19- 68 it was a little chilling to be there it's now a historical site and they have a museum uh, inside of that that motel it just looks like a classic motel from the 1960s it was uh the the bad side of town uh during that era uh it's you know now the hipster side of town uh in Memphis and being there and being so close to the place where Dr. King was shot he was he had gone out uh on the balcony of of the hotel it was a, it's a two floor hotel and he's out on the balcony and uh someone about two blocks away in a boarding house that's been uh, torn down since just shot him shot him dead with 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 one bullet Dr. King uh had been in Memphis uh he had been invited there to take part in um agitation around um a strike that was going on with the sanitation workers uh in the city it seems strange to us now uh but the reality was that in 1968 uh black garbage collectors were paid ...differently than white garbage collectors. And black garbage collectors didn't receive a pension... ...and white garbage collectors did. And black garbage collectors didn't even get the honor of having a uniform... ...a city uniform, but th- the white garbage collectors did. It seems strange to us now. It seems so obviously unfair, but at that time that was the reality. Uh, and the black garbage collectors were on strike... Uh, about this, trying to bring about a, a, a more a more just arrangement within 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 the city, and Dr. King had been invited there, and he went to speak at Mason's Temple, which is this enormous church. It's it's the mother church of the Church of God in Christ, which is a, a, a Pentecostal denomination. Five thousand seat auditorium in this church, and he gets there and. And he uh, gives a speech that's come to be known as the, I've been to the mountaintop speech. It ends up being the last speech of his life because he'll be shot the next day. And in this speech, it's pretty clear that King has some premonitions of what's Coming down the road for him. Now he had been receiving death threats for more than a decade. At this point, he there was an assassination attempt on him in 1958. Someone came up to hit him and said, "Are you Dr. King?" And he said, "Yes." And they stabbed him. Okay, so he, he was a man who knew that he lived a, a life of danger, and yet he kept moving forward. And I remember thinking as I'm like looking across the way toward this. Um, toward this motel, like how uh, brave he must have been. Like I, I wouldn't do it, okay? I I would not stand at the front of a movement that would put me and my family in danger in in that way. I, I would be too big of a chicken and yet week after week and year after year he continued to be out in front and in danger pressing forward In his speech, he closes this way, and then I got to Memphis and some began to say the threats or the talk about the threats that were out. What would happen to me? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter to me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And I'm so happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And then that's the end of his speech. And then the next afternoon he's sh- he, he shot. The Apostle Paul, in a similar way, continued to press forward as there is this active, hostile opposition to me. I have to say that I personally can't understand that 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 kind of personal courage to be able to, to, to press forward in that way. Dr. King says that he is pressing forward because... Because he knows that he's doing what God wants him to do. And I think to be in that place where you are acting uh, in, in what you understand to be God's will for your life, I think perhaps that allows you to press forward in a remarkable way. I, I pray that I never have to be put into a position where uh, following God's will feels so personally threatening to me and so dangerous to me. But it was for the Apostle Paul. Now for the Apostle Paul... I think it's important to understand how central the resurrection is to his conversion and to his theology and to the gospel that he proclaims. When Paul gets to Jerusalem, which we will start reading about in a couple of weeks, when Paul gets to Jerusalem, he is beset by a crowd of people who want to kill him. And he is then thrown into jail, which was a safer place than the being in the hands of a lynch mob. And in being entered into this uh, kind of uh, judicial process, he has to speak before the chief priests and the Jewish council. He has to speak before the Roman governor. And in his speeches... What he keeps driving back to as a characterization of what he's speaking about in his whole life is the resurrection. It's all about the resurrection. Acts 23, 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other part Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee. A son of a Pharisee. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Paul was preaching the resurrection and people were unhappy. Because here's the problem with the resurrection. That if there is a resurrection, people have no power over you. Okay. Ultimately, the power that people have over you is the ability to kill you. But if God will raise you from the dead, that power is evaporated. When he goes before Governor Felix, Paul writes, or Paul says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way, which is the name for the church then, which they call a sect... I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Paul was preaching the resurrection. Why did he preach the resurrection? Well, as a Pharisee, he believed in the resurrection but then he met the resurrected Christ and it became very real to him he meets the resurrected Christ and his conversion happens in that moment all right you all know the story of paul opposing the church as a sect you know as some you know they would have ca- we would have called it a cult okay these crazy new people they believe wrong things it's a cult they're messing up with our religion our pure religion and paul persecuted those people and paul chased those people down and paul had some of those people killed, and then he meets the resurrected Christ. Well, there's no more argument. When you've met the resurrected Christ, everything changes, and your value structure changes, and guess what? Your fear of death changes too. Paul's not afraid to die. I don't think he wanted to die, but he's not afraid to die. Acts chapter 24, 21, this is also before Governor Felix It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. The heart and the core of Paul's proclamation is a proclamation of the resurrection, which is why I am mystified when there are some people who call themselves Christians who walk away from this fundamental truth that the dead will rise Okay. There is no Christianity without the resurrection. The Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen, says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You can't have just a this-world Christianity. You can't have Jesus as the moral teacher who tells you how to have a nicely ordered society. It doesn't work that way. Jesus isn't Buddha. Okay, Jesus is the portal to a resurrection and we live our lives in this world well because we're attached to another world through the resurrection. If we believe in Jesus but don't believe in the resurrection, we are above all people to be pitied. It is a pitiable false gospel that says there is not a bodily resurrection. Paul anchors... The conversion experience in the resurrection. He anchors what it means to be a Christian in the resurrection. This is Romans 10:9. Those of you who know the Romans road, this is one of the stops along the road. Romans 10 9. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay? There is no salvation without a belief in the resurrection. Okay? There is no Christianity without the resurrection. The gospel is about the resurrection. And by resurrection, I don't mean something spiritual. I mean a dead body stops being dead and becomes alive. Okay? The promise is, is that we too will be like Christ one day. Christ died... And then he was raised in a glorified state. And up to 500 people saw him with their own eyes. They touched him. They saw him eat. They spent time with him. He was there a long time. And those people's lives were so transformed by that experience of seeing a dead person who had come alive that they risked everything. You wonder why the church was so willing to be martyred? One in seven is the figure that I've heard for the first century church that one in seven were killed for their faith. Why? Because they knew it wasn't the end of the story. Okay? that's not the end. You, You cannot control me by a death threat. I won't be stopped by a threat of violence. Okay? Because there's a resurrection. It's the gospel. Believe it. It's true now and forevermore. The Apostle Paul in this journey, I don't know, I marvel at the guy. I marvel at his single-mindedness. I marvel at his generosity with the people that he met along the way. I marvel at his ability to love and to embrace so many people along the way. I mean, I'm an introvert by nature. That makes me exhausted. I spend too much time with people. The Apostle Paul, three years with those folks at Ephesus. Pressing into their lives, pouring himself out for them because of this great message of the resurrection. I don't know where you are today with regard to the resurrection. There's going to be a resurrection. By the way, it's not only the good who get resurrected, it's also the damned who will be resurrected. Okay, it's a, it's a resurrection of all people to face a final judgment. All right. Um, and you've heard the gospel at least once. You've probably heard it a hundred times in your life. My hope for you is, is that the Holy Spirit has enabled your heart to receive and to believe this fundamental truth that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was killed as the prophets had forewarned that he would be and that he was raised from the dead bodily. Okay, as an atonement for our sin. By faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are applied to Christ, and Christ's perfect life is applied, is applied to us. Okay, that's what it means to be saved. There's a kind of double exchange that goes on here. We unload our sin and guilt, and Christ heaps on us the robes of righteousness. Anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ is a sinner, but you're robed beautifully. (laughs) You've got the robes of righteousness. Not my own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. And one day, uh, I will stand before uh, the judge in my robes of righteousness. And he will say to me, well done, my good and faithful servant. My prayer for you this day is, is that you understand that gospel. And that you receive it and believe it for yourself. Okay? Salvation is not inherited. Your your parents may have been Christians. That doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Okay, each one of us must choose for ourselves and decide for ourselves. May this be, uh, the day of choice for all of us. Let us pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you. And we thank you, uh, for brother Paul and for his willingness to just keep moving forward in spite of, in spite of the threats. Lord, I thank you that, uh, you made his life good and rich and meaningful. I I thank you that you saved him. from his own righteousness Lord I pray that you would uh, seal to our hearts uh, the truth of the gospel I pray that we would recognize that uh, Jesus was raised from the dead and that his death can be an atonement for us if we will believe in him and trust in him alone Lord I pray that you would have your will and your way with us and I do pray this in Jesus name Amen. Amen.